Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the uh, LSE. Uh, on behalf of both the Department of International History here at LSE um, and the LSE Ideas Cold War Studies Project, uh, it's my great pleasure to welcome you to tonight's lecture by Professor Hope Harrison, marking the publication of her new book, After the Berlin Wall, Memory and the Making of the New Germany, 1989 to the Present. My name is Roham Alvandi. Uh, I'm an associate professor in the Department of International History, and I'm the director of the LSE Ideas Cold War Studies Project. Uh, and as we approach the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall on the 9th of November, um, I can't think of anyone in the world more appropriate than Professor Harrison to come uh, and speak to us about the arc of memory, the, the politics of memory uh, in Germany since 1989. Um, let me tell you a little bit about um, Professor Harrison. She is Associate Professor of History and International Affairs at the George Washington University in Washington, D.C., um, in addition to the new book uh, that we're going to be discussing tonight, um, she is uh, also the author of Driving the Soviets Up the Wall, Soviet-East German Relations, 1953 to 1961, uh, which was published by Princeton University Press in 2003. Um, she is widely regarded uh, as one of the leading historians of the Cold War, of Germany, uh, and of Russia, having held numerous uh, very distinguished research fellowships at um, pretty much every transatlantic institution uh, that you can think of. Um, and she sits on the advisory boards of almost all of the major cultural uh, and historical institutions that have to do um, uh, with these topics. Uh, very interestingly, she has also served in government uh, she served in the White House on the National Security Council staff uh, from 2000 to 2001 as Director for European and Eurasian Affairs, spanning both the Clinton and George H.W. Uh, Bush uh, administrations. George W. Yes. Not H.W. Oh, pardon me, George W. Bush, yes. Um, so Hope is going to speak for about uh, 45 minutes or so, and then we'll have an opportunity for... Um, Q&A, uh, and uh, after which um, you can purchase copies of the book and she'll be available to sign them uh, outside. Uh, I should also mention that we are recording this event uh, so that you're aware of that, um, and that recording is going to be published as an audio um, podcast. Um, if you want to tweet about the event, the suggested hashtag is LSE Berlin Wall. So without further ado, could you please join me in welcoming Professor Hope Harrison to the LSE. Thank you so much. Can you hear me? Great. Uh, thank you, Roham. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks to Dora for organizing all this hard work. It's just great to be back at LSE. We at GW and the History Department have a close relationship with the International History Department here at LSE, so and it's, 
It's really great to be here, and it's great to see my dear friend and former colleague at GW, Vlad Zubak, who you all stole from us, and I'm so happy he's here. And I'm very happy that I think somewhere in this audience is my goddaughter, Camila, uh, who's studying in London. Um, so it's great to have her here as well. Uh, as we look ahead to November 9th and the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. I'm going to give you a chance today to ask everything you ever wanted to know about the Berlin Wall and maybe things you didn't know you wanted to know. Um, my big uh, questions and interest uh, have long been connected with the Berlin Wall. As Roham said, my first book was on the decision to build the wall in 1961. And for that, I spent most of the 1990s flying back and forth between Moscow and Berlin, uh, doing research in the archives to find out about the original decision to build the wall to stop East Germans from fleeing to the West. The second book uh, looks at the past 30 years since the fall of the wall and seeks to uh, investigate the various ways that Germany uh, has come to terms with the history and legacy of the Berlin Wall, um, such as how is it commemorated, or in the case of its toppling, how is it celebrated? I look at monuments, museums, memorials, political rituals, novels, musicals, trials, uh, all sorts of different ways the Germans have grappled with this important part of their past. I'm particularly interested in understanding who gets to decide what the public learns about the history of the wall in public places. Whose memories and which narratives about this history matter? I look closely in my book at people I call memory activists, people who push to remember certain aspects of the past and push to remember them in certain ways. Uh, major commemorative events such as the 30th anniversary of the wall coming up can serve to either unite people or divide them. My research mem uh, methods are those of the historian and really the anthropologist with uh, participant observation at most of the major ceremonies on anniversaries having to do with the wall. I've also used many archival and other document collections and I've interviewed over 100 Germans who had some say in how the wall is publicly remembered. So today, I'm going to talk to you um, about three different stories, three different kinds of people who remember the wall in very different ways. I'm also going to talk to you about the main uh, German narrative about the history of the wall and some problems with that dominative, dominant narrative. And I'm going to end telling you about what's planned in Berlin uh, in November for the 30th anniversary. So to make sure everyone's on the same page, uh, where the wall was, uh, surrounding West Berlin, which was located 110 miles east inside of communist East German territory. 
So when the East Germans built that wall in 1961, it prevented East Germans from East Berlin or the surrounding East German countryside from getting into democratic, free West Berlin. The wall was always more than one wall. It was an entire death strip which uh, included two walls, an outer and an inner wall, and multiple layers in between, including armed guards with an order to shoot unauthorized so-called border violators, and guard dogs and all sorts of other border installations to make it very painful and lethal to cross that border. Before the East Germans built the wall, over two million people had fled. In the 28 years the wall stood, so far they know about the identities of 140 people who were killed trying to escape. On the broader East German, West German border and the border at the Baltic Sea, there were hundreds of people killed trying to escape. Um, tens of thousands of people were arrested while planning or trying to escape, and East Germany imposed 71,000 prison sentences on people for the crime of Republikflucht, trying to escape from the Republic. But this all came to an end suddenly, mistakenly, on November 9th, 1989 when, as I say to my students, as a, a warning, don't go to a public event unprepared, especially a press conference, uh, when one of the leaders, Gunter Schabowski, mistakenly announced that the border was open and that the Berlin Wall was open, which was not the plan. He hadn't been at the main meeting that day, he hadn't read the notes carefully, and he showed up and announced that contrary to what he was supposed to say, that people still had to apply for permission to leave. Um, instead, he just said, the Berlin Wall is open, uh, when asked. And so people started heading toward the Berlin Wall, hundreds and then thousands and then tens of thousands. And uh, eventually, one of the guards there in charge of the crossing point of Bornholmer Strasse opened the barrier, faced with these tens of thousands of people saying, didn't you see the live press conference that said the wall is open? Well, open it. So he did, and uh, others followed suit. So this was not planned, this was not supposed to happen. So it was a huge party at the Brandenburg Gate on the night of November 9th. Now, at that very moment when people were partying, I myself happened to be on a plane headed from New York via Frankfurt to West Berlin. So we landed in Frankfurt a few hours after this all happened, knowing nothing, got on the commuter flight from Frankfurt to West Berlin, and everyone was reading these newspapers with these banner headlines, Demauer is often, and I thought, that means the wall is open. I thought, is my German not as good as I thought it was? What is going on? And the pilot got on the intercom and said, ladies and gentlemen, in case you haven't heard, the Berlin Wall opened last night and we are flying into history. 
So there I am as a PhD student at Columbia University uh, standing in front of the Berlin Wall just hours after it opened. And in fact, I was writing my dissertation on the Berlin Wall. <laughs> so it was um, an incredible stroke of luck, and I was there for 10 amazing days watching them uh, open um, parts of the wall for more East Germans to come through, watching West Germans welcoming them, hugging them, everyone crying tears of joy. Uh, West Germans giving the East Germans money, flowers, champagne. Um, it was uh, an extraordinary experience. And I also attended some of the demonstrations against the communist regime in the East. Uh, so these pictures of the tearing down the wall um, are the beginning, of course, of what happened after the wall. Um, uh, most people, not surprisingly, wanted to get rid of the 96 miles of Berlin Wall that surrounded West Berlin. That was the whole point. That was one of the demands of the East Germans marching on the streets. Die Mauer muss weg. The wall's got to go. Um, so I am now going to tell you stories of three different people um, and their different approaches to what to do after the fall of the wall. And the first is going to talk about victims and perpetrators. And in particular, um, Michael Schmidt, who I profile in my book. Uh, he was 20 years old when he tried to escape across the wall on December 1st, 1984. He had been very upset with the East German system, with the regime. He felt stifled. He was, in fact, very angry. His grandfather lived in West Berlin. And when his grandfather turned 80, the East German regime wouldn't let Michael's father go to his own father's 80th birthday party. Michael was very angry by that. Uh, Things were compounded when it came time for his military service, and the military recruiters tried to persuade him to either do three years instead of a year and a half, uh, or to agree to serve at the border. And he said, I am not shooting unarmed people in the back, and he stormed out of the room, which did not go over well with the East German military recruiters and, and made him even more adamant that he wanted out. He told his parents he wanted to apply for permission to emigrate. The problem is that as soon as you did that with the East German regime, you, know, you were marked and your whole family was marked. Um, anybody in the family who was at university would be kicked out. People would generally lose their jobs. Um, and so there would be a lot of pressure on the family. And his parents said to him, look, your brother is in university. Can you please wait a couple of years to do this? Uh, Michael obviously decided um, to try another way. And um, on the night, uh, it was a Friday night, um, uh, on November 30th, he went out to a disco in East Berlin with some friends. 
He talked all about wanting to leave. He drank more than usual. And at a certain point past midnight, he and a woman who remains unknown to this day left together and headed for the border. Now, Michael worked in a construction company that worked on some buildings right up against the first part of the Berlin Wall. And from the roof of that, he had gotten a look at that whole border strip at least what you could see. And so he thought he knew what he was up against. So they went and they got two ladders and they put them up against the first wall, at which point the woman with him clearly got cold feet and left. So Michael climbed up, um, carrying the other ladder, climbed up over the first wall, jumped down, and was running with the second ladder through the whole death strip up to the outer wall, the last barrier. If he got over that, he'd be in West Berlin. But just when he put the ladder up against the wall, two border soldiers started shouting, stop. He didn't stop, and they started shooting. And he and the ladder dropped to the ground. Um, they ran over to him and said, what kind of crap are you pulling? And he said with a very weak voice, I guess you guys got me after all. The two soldiers carried him into the guard tower, covered him with a blanket. He was bleeding. They had fired 50 shots at him, covered him with a blanket, gave him no first aid. Their superiors came. They called um, a medic, but this entire process was always run by the East German secret police. So they didn't call a regular ambulance. They called this medic, which came from farther away. It took 45 minutes to get there. Then they took him to a hospital, not a regular hospital, hospital run by the secret police, which was farther away, such that by the time they got him in the operating room, it had been two hours since he had been shot. And as they tried to operate and, I guess, stop the bleeding from the bullet that has punctured his lung, he died. So now it's Saturday morning, December 1st, and his parents wonder, where is our son? And they're very worried. They've heard reports from the Western media about an incident at the wall. So his father, Horst Schmidt, Horst goes to the police station and wants to file a missing person report. The police say, your son's 20 years old. It was a Friday night. He's out. He's having fun. You don't need to file a missing persons report. So his father went home, and he went back the next day, Sunday. And he said, I want to file a missing persons report. I've heard some reports. And they said, don't listen to what you hear in the Western media. Nothing happened at the wall. It's the weekend. There's no reason. By Monday, his father was beside himself and insisted on filing a missing persons report. The next day, the Stasi showed up at the house of his parents, interrogated them, everything they could tell about their son, and then took them with him into the center of Berlin to meet with the senior Stasi official. Horst finally said, what is going on? Where is our son? And they said, he was killed trying to attack the border installations. We did everything we could, but his life couldn't be saved. 
and we'll do the funeral for you. And they said, no, thank you, we'll do the funeral ourselves. So when the wall fell, Horst Schmidt couldn't celebrate the way so many Germans did because he didn't have his son. Instead, he wanted the guys who killed his son to pay. So he worked with public prosecutors in United Germany to bring to trial the two border soldiers who had shot his son. Now these cases began under the East German system and as part of the unification treaty between East and West Germany, it was agreed that United Germany would continue these cases with public prosecutors. So Horst Schmidt worked with public prosecutors to bring Udo Walter and Uwe Hapke to trial, the two young border soldiers who had fired more than 50 <coughs> shots at their son, Michael. Michael's mother went the first day of the trial, but after that she couldn't take it anymore and she stayed home while Horst went. Um, ultimately, after three months of the trial, on um, the judges ruled um, that, of course, these two were guilty. Um, they confessed. They, they told everything. Um, they got sentences of 18 months and 21 months, but both sentences were suspended and they didn't go to prison because the judges argued they were guilty, but they were at the bottom of the hierarchy. Uh, you know, even though it's not supposed to work this way in Germany, you know, they were following orders. And um, so they decided to go after all the higher-ups. And Horst Schmidt, Michael's father, was one of the co-plaintiffs to all of those cases, the cases against the military leaders and the political leaders, against the border, the head of the border troops, and the Politburo trials. Horst Schmidt was one of the co-plaintiffs. He was incredibly frustrated with the lenient sentences um, that everyone got, but it was very important to him that his son and people like him be remembered at a time when people were tearing down the wall wanting to leave it in the past and move on. He and others liked him argued, we can't just forget about this. These, these people must be commemorated. And so at the central Berlin Wall Memorial in Berlin at Bernauerstrasse, there is now this large window of commemoration, Fenster des Gedenkens, with pictures of the 140 people killed at the wall, including Michel, who's here in the center with the white rose in front of him. Commemorating the victims of the wall has become a fundamental part of German memory culture. Here are all the German leaders uh, in the middle. She's, she's mostly hidden, um, but the fourth from the right, mostly hidden, is Angela Merkel. Um, to her right was the president of the Bundestag. To, her, to that right is the president of the country, and then the mayor of Berlin. 
all the leaders on the major anniversaries, August 13th, the day the wall was built, and November 9th, the day it came down, commemorate these victims of the wall. So the next story I'm going to tell you um, is a different one. Um, it's less tied to particular individuals and more to the belief that in general pieces of the wall itself and the history of the wall need to be kept alive for future generations of Germans to learn about and to commemorate the victims, of course, um, and to show all the many people from all over the world who come to Germany and are interested in seeing parts of the wall. And the person I'm going to talk about here is Pastor Manfred Fischer. He's in the suit holding up the sign, which um, was just a few months after the wall came down when everybody was coming and hacking off their pieces of the walls, the so-called wall peckers. His sign says, please don't hack off pieces of the wall, please, right here at this spot. Please help us preserve this section of the wall as a memorial. And as he said to me when I interviewed him, he said, Hope, I felt like this was the scene of a crime. And when there's a crime scene, what's the first thing the police and detectives do? They come and they mark it off, and they don't let anyone touch it. They preserve the scene of the crime. And that was his instinct. Now, he was from the West. He was, in fact, the pastor of um, a church right across the street from the Berlin Wall, except the church actually um, was in the parish building because the original church you see here was in fact in the middle of the death strip. The Church of Reconciliation, which had been built in 1894, was right on the line between two districts of Berlin, Mitte and Wedding. And when Berlin was divided into east and west, that dividing line went right down the street. And when the wall went up, that was in the middle of the Berlin Wall death strip. So since 1961, that big church had been surrounded by the wall and no one could get to it. So when Pastor Manfred Fischer came to become the pastor of the church in 1975, he just saw it on the other side of the wall and in his own parish building across the street, a much smaller, just sort of regular building, they set up one room to be the house of worship. But in January of 1985, the East German regime decided they were sick of having that big old church in the way. They didn't want the border guards to have anything getting in the way of their field of vision of anyone trying to escape. So the East German regime first blew up the nave of the church, as you see here. And one week later, they blew up the bell tower. So it was gone. And so Pastor Manfred Fischer, for that reason, also was very affected by the history of the Berlin Wall and wanted to remember this part of the history, too. He also pointed out that the street that this was on, Bernauerstrasse, was in the center of the city and the dividing line went down the sidewalk. So you're looking here, the house 
was in East Berlin. The sidewalk in front of it was West Berlin, and you see people jumping out of their windows of their houses in East Berlin to escape into West Berlin, and their firemen and civilians holding a, a big net underneath. Now, a lot of people made it and landed in the net, but some people didn't and were killed jumping out of their windows trying to escape and then running across the street deeper into West Berlin. And Manfred Fischer said this is a fundamental part of the history of Berlin. It affected us deeply. It divided families, friends, neighbors. This has to be remembered. So what is now the Berlin Wall Memorial is in fact seven blocks long along what used to be the death strip. And the picture on the left, you see the small path that goes through the grass. That was the patrol route of the border soldiers. Um, you see the oval-shaped building in the middle of the grass up on top. That's the newly built chapel of reconciliation he built on the grounds of what used to be the huge church of reconciliation. But the story I particularly, and, and the original pieces of the wall you see in the middle picture and him on the right. But I want to draw your attention to the big picture on the left. If you look at the bottom half of that picture, that's where he wanted the Berlin Wall Memorial to be. And that was directly across the street from his parish. Um, it's sort of the gray building to the left uh, in the middle of the picture. The problem was that those two blocks in the lower part of the, the picture there belonged to another church, the Sophian Church, and it had been their cemetery. And the East Germans had dug up graves to create the Berlin Wall death strip. So the people at the Sophian Kirche said, we already had 28 years with the wall. No, we don't want a Berlin Wall memorial here. No, we don't want to keep those pieces of the wall here. We want our cemetery back. The same with the buildings on the in the bottom left corner was yet another pastor, a third pastor of the Lazarus community, which ran in those buildings um, a retirement home and a hospital. And they, for 28 years, had been looking out of their windows at the Berlin Wall. And they, too, said, no, 28 years was enough. So Pastor Manfred Fischer was in the minority on this one block in Berlin of how do we remember the Berlin Wall? What do we do? So the Berlin government tried to mediate, and there were many twists and turns along the way, which I describe in detail in my book. But ultimately, Pastor Manfred Fischer, who was not somebody to give up easily, um, prevailed, and they all came to support creating this Berlin Wall Memorial, which tells the history of all of this, and of the Sophian Church and their cemetery, and the Lazarus community. The Chapel of Reconciliation, Manfred Fischer said, is very important to help people in this city heal 
You know, he said they're going to come here to this memorial. They're going to think about victims. They're going to learn about the history of what happened on this site. But they also need some quiet place for contemplation. And so he worked with some architects um, who initially proposed to him that they would build the new chapel out of concrete, steel, and glass. And he said, I told you no concrete. The wall was made of concrete. There's no way concrete is going into this chapel. It's got to be organic materials. So ultimately, he prevailed as always, and the walls are made of loam, which is clay mixed with materials to help it set. And as he explained to me, what they did is they used pieces of the old church. You see the red brick. You see some of the stones from the old church. He said, we used the destruction from that old church to create something new, to create something that would hopefully help people reconcile um, with the loam walls of the Chapel of Reconciliation. So the third and final individual I'm going to tell you about today um, brings us to a very different kind of narrative about the Berlin Wall, and that's a narrative about heroes the heroes who helped bring it down. So Tom Sello here, in the picture on the left, that's from his hippie days as a dissident in East Berlin, uh, which took a lot of guts. He was one of a small number of people who were um, organizing illegal meetings. They were keeping track of political prisoners. Uh, he was um, publishing an underground newspaper about all the pollution of the environment in East Germany. Um, and he was part of what became the massive demonstrations on the streets of East Germany in the fall of 1989. And he was frustrated in United Germany that not enough people really knew about the peaceful revolution. Um, and all the people that had taken to the streets, such as in the picture on the left, the most famous demonstration, which was a month before the fall of the wall in Leipzig on October 9th, a night when the authorities had, had put out statements that they were going to crack down on the usual Monday night demonstration, where they made it clear they were compiling body bags and blood plasma at hospitals, Everyone felt, you know, this isn't going to be good. The authorities had also praised the Chinese communists for cracking down at Tiananmen Square that summer. But still 70,000 East German citizens decided to risk it and went out onto the streets. Some of them beforehand writing their last will and testament particularly writing what should happen to their children if they were taken into prison by the secret police. Because generally, if that happened, in a lot of cases, your children were put in orphanages or they were given to others to adopt without your permission. And people wanted to make sure that didn't happen. So it was dramatic decisions deciding to go out on the streets. 
which they did in Leipzig on October 9th, and then Berlin on November 4th, in Alexanderplatz, and in many places throughout the country. So Tom Zello decided that this story needed to be told, the story of the East Germans taking to the streets, uh, East Germans who had been inspired by Gorbachev in Moscow, who had been inspired by Lech Walesa and Solidarity in Poland, um, that this story needed to be told. And he put together the material for an exhibit, and he thought, okay, the 20th anniversary of the fall of the wall in 2009 is the perfect chance to educate the broad public about what happened. And the wall didn't fall in the midst, you know, by itself. It was part of this broader peaceful revolution. And this story, this narrative, this look back to 1989 was eagerly embraced by Germany's political leaders and has become the dominant narrative in Germany about the fall of the wall. Uh, in the middle, you've got the Minister of Culture. The red tie was Foreign Minister Steinmeier, who's now the German president. The far right was Mayor Wolverite. Uh, for November 9th, they had a three-day festival where over 10,000 school children painted over 1,000 dominoes um, that would be toppled over on the night of November 9th, like the communist regimes in Europe toppled over in 1989. Um, here uh, is Angela Merkel in the center, surrounded by all the leaders of the EU and Russia and the US. You see Hillary Clinton on the right with the red scarf. Uh, Medvedev, uh, president of Russia at the time, is right next to Angela Merkel, Sarkozy, Gordon Brown. Gordon Brown that night, by the way, said, um, History is moving in the direction of our greatest dreams, not our worst fears. How times have changed. <laughs> the world leaders mimicked what had happened 20 years before, and they walked through the gate from east to west. And I happily had a wonderful ticket sitting there watching all this, and I thought to myself, my God, you know, the German leaders are cocooned inside of all these world leaders, feeling the relief off their shoulders of the weight of German history, of the weight of the Holocaust, finally feeling there's something in our history we can celebrate and be proud of. There's something that others want to celebrate with us. Um, and then the dominoes were toppled and the fireworks went off overhead. Um, and as I argue in the book, with this, there was created a new historical narrative, a new founding myth of united Germany, born from the roots of the East German peaceful revolution. Putting Germany in the community of nations it has long wanted to be a part of. Um, and also saying something about German identity and Germans as people, saying we're not just a nation of perpetrators of the Holocaust. We're also a nation with heroes. If only the story ended there 10 years ago. But instead, as you all know, living here in London, since the refugee exodus of 2015, um, 
what happened in 1989 feels like a dream. Uh, and instead, more walls have been going up in Europe. Angela Merkel herself, as I'm sure you know, welcomed the refugees in 2015. She said, wir schaffen das. We can do it. We can handle it. She felt a moral obligation, first of all, as a German, as a nation that had caused the Holocaust, where so many people had to be refugees. She felt Germany was a wealthy country. It could and should help people in need. But also, as someone from East Germany who had grown up behind the wall without freedom, she understood people wanting to flee from uh, authoritarian, non-democratic regimes. But of course, not all Germans felt that way. Others opposed admitting the refugees, uh, which in the past few years has really fueled the far-right party, the Alternative for Deutschland, the AfD. In the last federal elections in 2017, they came in third, getting 12.6% of the vote. This fall, there are elections in three of the former East German states where this party is particularly strong. Um, in September, in elections in Brandenburg and Saxony, they got 23 and 27%. Um, there will be elections in a week in Thuringia, also a former East German state, and they're polling at about 24% there. In the election campaign this year uh, in Brandenburg, in the former East, they're playing on the revolution of 1989, where the key slogan was, Wir sind das Volk, we are the people. You know, the government has to pay attention to us. Well, now they're using that slogan again, saying, you know, we are the people, we in this party, and we don't want these refugees, we don't want immigrants, um, which has many people outraged because, of course, that slogan in 1989 meant democracy and openness, and now it means really, you know, exclusion. Um, on Unity Day, on October 3rd this year, um, some of the people in the former East who feel they have lost out with unification, some people who maybe lost their jobs and feel that East Germans are looked down on as second-class citizens, they marched. Um, the official unity celebrations were in the city of Kiel, and they marched on the streets saying, um, 30 years of annexation is enough, meaning the West had annexed the East. Um, so this is a different kind of narrative, talking about people in the East who've been victims since the fall of the wall, and they, have been, they are a minority, but a vocal minority. Uh, such that on the eve of the 30th anniversary of the fall of the wall, suddenly, at no time since 1990, have there been so many discussions about an east-west divide in Germany, which is visible in elections, um, and it's also visible economically. East Germans still earn, on average, less than West Germans. Uh, there's less internet broadband access. There's a lower birth rate in the East, lower economic productivity. And none of the companies on the German stock exchange have headquarters in the East, not a single one. 
and some in the East feel ignored. In a recent poll that asked Germans, do you feel more German or do you feel more East German or West German? East Germans said 47% of people in the East said they feel more East German. Only 44% of them said they feel German. Whereas if you ask West Germans, 70% said they feel German. But I'm an optimistic person, so I feel the need to point out the good news of what's happened over the past 30 years since the fall of the wall. First of all, for young people who've been born since then, this, all this doesn't matter. You know, the world is open. There isn't this division. Um, they can't imagine how their parents and grandparents lived with the wall. In fact, they've started asking them questions like, hey, how could you live with that? And by the way, uh, what did you do in East Germany? Like parents ask, like kids ask their parents after the Nazi period. Also, if you look in these, the overall economy, the lifespan and the environment are all much better than they were. The economic gaps, yes, they still exist, but they've narrowed dramatically. 76% of all Germans are proud of the 1989 peaceful revolution and the fall of the wall. 70% of East Germans feel they gained with unification. And in a time when the headlines goes to all the bad news, it's important to remember that 75% of Germans are not voting for the far right. So, um, a couple um, concluding things about this narrative and about the plans for this year. So this dominant narrative about the courageous East Germans who took to the streets, as with all narratives, of course, leaves some things out. Um, it doesn't talk about the people who had power who peacefully gave it up, such as Harold Yeager, who's the guy who was on duty that night, who was the first one to open the, the wall at Bornholmerstrasse, where, by the way, Angela Merkel herself was one of the 20,000 people who walked across that checkpoint that night because he opened the, go the door. Um, so there's not a lot of talk about the people who had power at various places in the chain who gave that up peacefully. There's also much less talk of East Germans that left. The focus is on the East Germans who stayed and took to the streets. But the East Germans who fled when Hungary opened its border with Austria or who camped out by the thousands at West German embassies in Prague and Warsaw um, aren't talked about so much. Also, the impact of the fall of the wall on others. For example, uh, Berlin has a very large Turkish population who generally, you know, sort of jokingly said, yeah, well, when the wall fell, it fell on us because the jobs they had gotten now started to go to East Germans. Um, so there has been an effort to try to integrate some more voices into this narrative, and the Berlin Wall Memorial um, has two sites, the one I've talked to you about with the Berlin Wall, but also the Marienfelder Refugee Camp Memorial, which was the main refugee camp where East German refugees went to in West Berlin. They've now turned that into a museum, and they opened a temporary exhibit 
that looked at recent refugees to Germany, refugees from Afghanistan, Syria, Iraq, um, called after, the, after Our Escape, How We Want to Live. And it told their stories, um, uh, trying to make this history more relevant also to new people, new immigrants in Germany. So leading up now to November 9th and the 30th anniversary, given this talk of an east-west divide, um, frustrations within the country, the head of the Federal Commission on the anniversary, Matthias Platzik, has said, you know, and he clearly meant, you know, unlike in 2009, said we can't just say be proud and celebrate. He said we've got to have dialogue. So the government is fostering a lot of dialogue with people in the East and between people in the East and the West. Um, the Berlin organization um, planning the big festivities did a survey and found people were either embittered and disappointed since unification or they were indifferent um, or they called for what they said was a differentiated, sort of careful approach to the anniversary. Only non-Germans they talked to said, yeah, you should have a big, proud celebration like they had before. So Axel Klausmeier is now the director of the Berlin Wall Memorial, and he has pointed out that for the 30th anniversary, he says it's very important to emphasize what he calls the values of 1989, freedom and democracy, and standing up for those. And he said in these days, that is incredibly important, and we need to look back to the model of 1989. So there will be a week of um, things in Berlin, but nothing huge like the 10,000 dominoes that fall. Um, there will be more than 100 events with exhibits, discussions, seminars, and music. Um, Berlin will be sort of a huge history workshop highlighting places uh, where the peaceful revolution took place. At the Berlin Wall Memorial, uh, Chancellor Merkel, President Steinmeier, and the presidents of Poland, Hungary, the Czech Republic, and Slovakia will all attend the ceremony, and Steinmeier will speak at the Brandenburg Gate in the evening. But having in mind the people, the voices of the people from 1989, they've also given a variety of ways for people to contribute to this. So the thing floating above the gate, I don't quite know how this is going to work, but it's called the Skynet, and somehow it's going to have 30,000 messages for the 30th anniversary, 30,000 messages from people about something to do with the fall of the wall or walls today or courage. Um, so finally, um, lessons Germans draw from the history of the wall. There was much more talk 10 years ago and five years ago about the triumphant confident lessons. The wall could not permanently suppress the desire for freedom. Freedom and democracy won out. Walls can be overcome and peacefully so. We should help others overcome walls. Anything is possible with civic engagement. Don't just be a bystander. And in terms of German identity, Germans can be heroes in bringing down walls and supporting democracy. 
But there are also the tough lessons which people feel are very relevant today with the rise of the far right. The history of the wall shows that freedom and democracy can't be taken for granted and must be fought for every day. Uh, they feel that they must teach young people the history of the wall and the regime that stood behind it. And of course, history didn't end as we now know, unlike what Francis Fukuyama thought back then, history didn't end then. Developments in the East have been difficult for many. There's still a certain wall in the mind, Mauer im Kopf, and there are other walls going up elsewhere. And of course, most worrisome for German leaders, Germans aren't always heroes or Democrats. So whose voices count? This is uh, an ongoing issue in Germany. Whose voices count in the narrative about the fall of the wall? Well, certainly it's the victims, people who were killed trying to escape. They're a very important part of German memory culture, as are the peaceful revolutionaries of the fall of 1989. Uh, they also include people in protest movements in other communist countries and their Central and East European neighbors from 1989. And only in the past month have they started to mention the East Germans who fled in 1989, that they also played a role. There's still not much talk about people who gave up power peacefully, um, and there's a lot of discussion right now. I mean, front page news regularly in Germany about East German victims since the fall of the wall and since unification. So with that overview of some of what I talk about in my book, I'm happy to end and turn it over to you and to hear your questions and comments. Thank you very much for your attention. Well, thank you so much, Hope. Um, that's given us so much um, to think about. As I, as I was listening to you, I, I was thinking of all the historical connections between this institution and all the history that you're discussing. And the, I'm sure the ghost of Ralph Darendorf is somewhere up there and Karl Popper and, um, uh, uh, and others. Um, if I can abuse my position and, and ask you the first question, um, what, I, what, what I, I was in Berlin about a month ago. Um, uh, Berlin's a city that's very important for people who study Iranian history as well. It has a long sort of history of, of Iranians in Berlin. Um, but what I what I noticed visiting a lot of the sites of the former GDR, in, especially in East Berlin, is uh, a sort of not just memorialization but I dare say a slight nostalgia for an old, an, uh, an old familiar, safe, um, uh, socialist um, system. And if, if, if we think about the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 as the kind of pinnacle moment of liberalism, the, 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 the collapse of the socialist project in the birthplace of you know, in, in Germany, the birthplace of Karl Marx. Um, and then we think about where we are today, where, you know, that triumphalist moment of, you know, liberalism is now being completely questioned. Um, um, you know, liberalism is under attack at both an elite level and um, uh, at a popular level. 
So I wonder then, uh, from the narrative that I, I see in your book and in your lecture, why is it that given that that question of liberalism, that triumphant sort of moment of 1989 is so under scrutiny and under question, why is it that we don't see in Germany today a kind of resurgence of, let's say, a popular leftism, a neo-Marxism, um, something akin to, say, for example, the Corbynism that we have um, in this country. Instead, we have the opposite. So I'm curious as to why the German experience is, is different. Um, well, um, sites of the former GDR, it depends where you go. The only place I know in Berlin that has the nostalgia you mention is the DDR Museum. None of the others do. And that's been very much criticized for that, and they've tried to modify it a bit. Um, so, I mean, all the other institutions that I'm aware of in Berlin go the other direction, and definitely not nostalgia. You know, that one maybe does. Um, but, you know, it's not in institutions, but it's in, you know, some of the people who have had a hard time adjusting to capitalism um, after uh, what they experienced in, in East Germany. Um, and, you know, and younger people, I mean, we see capitalism, you know, has its flaws, and there are people in many countries who are feeling left out, including my own country. Um, so, um, you know, what I see in the, in the institutions in Berlin is um, a desperate plea, um, a desperate urging of citizens to see 1989 as a great liberal moment and to essentially try to reenact it in daily life. Um, Germans put millions of euros into civic education every year. And they've done this for decades. Once they finally came to grips with the Nazi past, they started putting lots of money into education to train people, to train Germans to be engaged Democrats and never let something like that happen again. So with the the rise of the far right, they're utterly panicked, the mainstream politicians. You know, we've been putting all this money into this. We've been trying so hard, and clearly we're reaching a lot of people, but there are some people that we definitely haven't reached. Um, so, you know, they've put even more money um, in, into this, um, and, you know, we're trying to reach out, um, going to the East and listening to people. Um, um, you know, there is the leftism, well, first of all, I mean, Angela Merkel's CDU has moved steadily to the left, which is why the SPD is disappearing as an important party in Germany after having been there for, you know, more than a century, a fundamental part of German politics, and it is just not. Uh, because under Angela Merkel, you know, believing in sort of the social safety net, you know, she moved the CDU so much more to the left that, you know, there hasn't been a lot, you know, more room. Now, the left party, which is the successor party to the old East German Communist Party, initially was the voice of 
people who were frustrated in the East. But people who used to vote for that left party are now voting for the far right party, which has taken on, you know, sort of the mantle of we speak for the underdogs in the East. Sounds very familiar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, the, the, the nostalgia that I was talking about, I, I was at the, um, the old Stasi headquarters where Eric Milker's office yes. is now. And as I was there, they were filming a new German television series about the Stasi. And there were, it was the, I had this bizarre experience of sort of actors dressed as Stasi officers walking around this building. Uh, and I felt I'd sort of gone back in time. But anyway, it was, it was incredible. Let me give you all a, a chance to pose your questions to um, her. If I could just ask you, please, uh, to wait for the microphone, because we're recording this. Um, and if I could just ask you to please give your name and any affiliation you might have. And please remember that a question ends with a question mark. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, yes, the gentleman there. Hi, my, my name is Tony. And um, you mentioned that 70% of East Germans have feel they have gained with unification. And I wonder, considering the, the economy is not as good as the West, but it's definitely better, and that you don't have the Stasi, the Stasi and so many other things, why there are 30% that believe this? Is because they feel like second-class citizens? And what would they prefer? Would, it, would they prefer to be an independent country? Yeah, the interesting thing is a far greater percent, like almost nobody wants East Germany back. So... Um, you know, that they don't want. Um, why the 30%? Yeah, that's the thing. It is, it's mostly not economic. It, it is mostly psychological. It's this, yeah, it's a feeling of not being taken seriously. Um, it's also the fact that the elite of Germany, um, leaving aside Angela Merkel as the chancellor, but, you know, in politics, in law, in the universities, in the media, the elite of Germany is still, and, and in business, is still overwhelmingly dominated by the West, um, including, you know, in in states and in businesses in the East. You know, there are people that have come from the West. So um, it, it is, and and also a lot of the people voting for the far right are doing fine economically. It's not that you know they're out of work and frustrated. Um, so it is much more a psychological issue um, for that 30%. Yes, the lady in the front row. Hi, I'm Yasmin. I'm from Germany. Um, my question is kind of basic. Do you ever think that in the future the East and the West will be the same? Will the East catch up, like economically? Like, are we gonna like? What do you think the next 20, 10, 20 years will happen? Um, yes, I think they'll they'll continue to get closer. Um, but as I always tell, you know, my German friends, all countries have regional differences. There are always wealthier parts of every country. I mean, Italy, North and South, there are huge differences. You know, in the U.S., it's sort of the coasts versus you know the middle of the country. So um, I, 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 
Certainly. Um, things have gotten much better in the East, and they will continue to. Uh, and there's some places in the East that are doing phenomenal. I mean, the, the, the so-called Silicon Valley of Germany is in the East. It's in, um, in Saxony, which gets the most votes for the AFD, but um, it's uh, around Leipzig and Dresden. All sorts of new businesses and high-tech, you know, um, such that some people in the West are envious of what's been invested there in the East. Um, so I do think, yeah, things will continue to get better, but there are always regional differences. Yes, the gentleman there, the glasses. Yeah, good evening. My name is Patrick Lee, uh, retired but interested in Germany. Having had the privilege of visiting Berlin while the war was still extant and having visited when it came down it's difficult in my mind to find any disadvantages uh, of the war having come down that's why I'm struggling uh, with the bottom item on your slide East German victims since the fall of the wall stroke unification I really struggle as I say to, to see to identify East German victims okay there have been economic differences but one would have thought was overwhelmingly the advantage of all parts of Germany of all citizens of, of Germany the, the wall has come down I'd just like some explanation who you think these victims are well, again, I, I can't say too much more than what I've said, which is that it's some people who have suffered economically. Um, you know, I mean, there was full, full employment in East Germany. Now, okay, that didn't mean it was an interesting job or you got a lot of money for it, but there wasn't the worry of the capitalist system of, you know, marketing yourself and all of that. Um, and so certainly, you know, people who were above 50 or even above 45 when the wall fell, some of them had a very hard time. Now, again, the German government put a lot of money into retraining a lot of people, but it, you know, it didn't work with everyone. Um, it worked with most. I mean, that's why I said, you know, the good news is the dominant news, but you know, there is a loud vocal minority, and it is, um, as I said in response to the previous question, it is, it is really much more psychological. It's a sense that um, East Germans aren't really listened to and that they've been colonized and their whole experiences were seen as um, not helpful and not good, um, and you know, I mean, to this day, something that is a shock to me, because I'm a curious person, I like to see the world. I mean, 20% of West Germans have never visited the East. I personally can't imagine that. But 20%, you know, have shown no interest. And, you know, that's what some of the people in the East feel. Like, wow, they really don't care. Yes, the lady. Uh, Hello, um, I'm Sijia, and I used to study in Germany, so I have two questions. In September this year, there were two state elections in Germany, in Sachsen and Brandenburg. 
So and the, the result is IFDA, the far-right party, becomes the second most powerful party in both states. And I looked up the statistics and was pretty surprised that uh, so many young people voted for IFDA in both states. And I was wondering if you can explain this confusing result. And my second question is, how do you think German government should tackle with IFDA problem? Yes, thank you. <laughs> Um, yeah, I don't, I don't quite know what to say about um, the young people, except, um, you know, because there are, it's not like there aren't opportunities. I just talked about some of the great opportunities that are available, particularly in Saxony, um, around Leipzig and Dresden. Um, but of course, you have to be, you know, skilled at certain things to take advantage of those opportunities, and you have to want to do that. Um, so, um, you know, um, people who are who are frustrated, people who who maybe their parents had a very hard time. I mean, it's going to be sort of another generation to get further away from kids who still feel like they saw their parents really suffer and their parents lose their jobs and their parents feel sort of rootless and, you know, not appreciated and depressed. Um, so some of it may come from that. Um, you know, one thing um, the German government, I really think, should do is um, set up some serious tax breaks for companies to set up in the East. I mean, they're now fully aware of the problems that, you know, none of the major German firms have headquarters in the East. And, you know, I would think they could change that. Um, and, you know, give, give businesses enough incentives um, I, I think they could change that, and that's definitely something I think they should do. Um, you know, complete with training programs that, you know, get these people into um, productive careers. Yes, that gentleman right there in the blue sweater at the back. Alastair Wilson, I work for a communications agency called Zinc Network. First off, thank you very much for a fantastic lecture. My question is simply, do you feel that the Berlin Wall kind of stole the thunder of 1989 from a lot of the other countries that contributed so much to the, what an incredible year? We have the Velvet Revolution in Czech and Slovakia, the Baltic Way. Uh, we have the bloody but successful revolution in Romania as well. These are all key events, and I wonder if lots of Czechs would think, look at the wall and think, that's just all my thunder of, what, of our contribution to this. Thank you very much. Yes, I actually write about that in my book. I write sort of about global memory of the wall, and I also write about um, countries such as the ones you mentioned that are sort of in competition over, you know, who gets attention, who gets credit um, for the big developments in bringing down communism. And there's no question that, yes, you know, the fall of the wall, um, the dramatic pictures have stolen the thunder from the others. Yes. Now, no country has been more upset by that than Poland. Um, this has just driven the, nut, the Poles nuts. 
Um, on the 20th anniversary in Berlin, there was a huge banner on the Unter den Linden, the main street in the center of Berlin, outside of the Polish embassy that said, it started with a round table, uh, which meant um, the end of communism in Europe did not begin with the fall of the wall on November 9th. It began with roundtable talks in Poland in the winter and spring of 1989, and then with the first partially free elections in Poland on June 4th of 1989. Now, so unfortunate for the Poles, what dominated the press on June 4th of 1989 was not the wonderful elections in Poland, it was the crackdown in Tiananmen Square. So um, the polls have, you know, expressed themselves again and again, you know, sort of stamping their feet, you know. We took the first brick out of the Berlin Wall. The Germans have welcomed that. I mean, those have accepted that. I mean, for the 20th anniversary, with the falling dominoes, who was invited to topple the first domino? Lech Valenza. Lech Valenza is invited to everything. So is Gorbachev, except the two of them don't like each other, and the two of them argue with each other, and there they are in Germany, and, you know, Gorbachev is, you know, overwhelmingly the number one hero for all of this in Germany. Um, but, you know, Valenza is a close second. He doesn't like being second, but... Um, He's, he's a close second. The Hungarians, who opened their barbed wire border with Austria. I mean, the former foreign minister wrote um, something like, uh, I forget, the title of his memoir was something like, you know, we removed the first brick in the wall, you know, when we opened the barbed wire border. So, yes, I mean, and again, I think that's partly because of our visual media age. And, you know, it was so dramatic. And, I mean, you know, I was there seeing it live. But, I mean, even seeing it on the TV, I mean, it's broadcast around the world. There were people in front of their televisions around the world with tears in their eyes, you know, so moved to see this, like, you know, what seemed to be this beautiful thing happening. It made everyone forget you know, um, any problems and made people really hopeful, like, wow, I mean, if that happened, anything can happen. And that, you know, the dominance, I think, of that imagery, um, the surprise, the people dancing on the wall, and then the bulldozers, you know, removing pieces of the wall, I think that, you know, partly the visual nature of that, as well as, as, well as the symbolism, I mean, 28 years that wall has stood. You know, it was seen as the symbol of the Cold War. And then, gone. And peacefully. Yeah. Yes, the lady there in the red. Hi, um, my name's Kaylee. Um, I was really interested in the points you made about um, the commemoration this year and how there's not so much an appetite for it. Um, I was just wondering if you think that's necessarily true on the international stage? <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, as the head of the planning said to me, Moritz van Dolmen, he said, he said, the world expects us to do something. Tourists come to Berlin, you know, world leaders, the media 
Everyone expects us to do something. He said, he said um, you know, saying, oh, you know, we don't really need to do much. He said, that's the equivalent of someone saying for Christmas, oh, really, you don't need to get me a present, you know. <laughs> Um, so he very much feels sort of this pressure, and he organized for the city of Berlin the massive 20th and 21st anniversary, 25th anniversary celebrations, and now he's doing the 30th. And yes, it's a different mood, but he still feels like the eyes of the world and the media and so many people and German politicians. I mean, still the majority of German politicians feel it's very important that it was a great moment. I mean, yes, there are other parts to the story and no, it's not complete, but still, it, you know, that the wall open peacefully is pretty amazing. Um, and they say, you know, it's worthy of celebrating that, um, even if a lot of Germans are, you know, who already, as my German friends are the first ones to tell me, Germans complain a lot. And, you know, they're complaining even more right now. Um, but, yep, still, there, there will be a week-long uh, celebration. This gentleman in the front row here. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, John Hume, regular visitor to Berlin, both before and after the war came down. My question is on Die Linke, and I just wonder, how does one explain how the old East German Communist Party uh, prevails, albeit in, different, uh, in a different form, especially given the extraordinary and horrible relevations from all those Stasi files? Well, there were a lot of people who worked for the East German regime, you know? Um, uh, I mean, each year there were 50,000 border soldiers. There were a heck of a lot more people working for the Stasi. There were more people in the party. So there were a lot of people. Um, a lot of them are glad the system is gone, but, you know, um, some of them definitely form an important basis for Die Linke. Um, but, you know, as I said before, Die Linke has changed. I mean, it's, it's, you know, no longer so tied to the old party. You know, they've mostly tried to become, and they were for a while until the AfD came on the scene, they were the party of protest, basically, for people in the East um, wanting their voices heard more. Um, but, you know, they're losing out to the AfD, so the two are sort of competing now in, you know, blaming West Germans for various things and trying to get votes from disgruntled people in the East. Yes, the gentleman in the Czech uh, shirt there. Well, thank you very much for a very clear talk. Um, I was interested in the people who gave up power peacefully. Perhaps you could talk a bit more about them. Why did they do it? Why did some people give up power when, as you said, there's the example of Tiananmen Square where people didn't give up power? And um, we've seen the Arab Spring, what happened there with you know, this initial response to popular unrest, but then the regime returned. So, so why do people, are there any common patterns in the people who did it? Yeah, great question. Um, 
Well, you know, for some of them, they had been growing disgruntled. Um, you know, with these big demonstrations, you know, some of them probably had family members out on the streets. Some of them, you know, I mean, Gorbachev himself within the Soviet Union came from somewhere. I mean, Gorbachev wanted to make reforms. Um, many of the people, it's not, by the way, that everybody marching on the streets wanted to completely get rid of East Germany and unite with West Germany. Too often, those two different processes get conflated. You know, the fall of the wall and sort of bringing down the hardline East German regime was one thing. You know, it was a separate thing that evolved, ultimately deciding for unification. But there were a lot of people, including Gorbachev himself, who wanted to reform the socialist system. Um, and so, you know, those people thought, and Gorbachev invited them. He wanted, you know, sort of people like him in the Central European countries. So some of them, you know, had been watching. I mean, some on the inside, they knew people were unhappy. They knew the economy wasn't doing well. They knew how massively indebted they were to the West and that they couldn't, they didn't know how they were going to go on. And when they asked Gorbachev for help, he said, I can't help you, I've got my own problems, ask West Germany. Um, so, you know, in some cases it was that they were disgruntled, they themselves had some doubts. Um, in other cases it was, it was a sense of being overwhelmed and outnumbered. You know, I mean, the, the 70,000 on the streets in Leipzig, you know, they interviewed some of the guys in power there afterwards who said, the last thing we expected was 70,000 people marching with candles peacefully. Like, what were we going to do? You know, we weren't going to start shooting. Um, and then, of course, the, the influence of Gorbachev. Like, knowing that Gorbachev was on the side of peace. I mean, that Gorbachev was not going to send in the tanks. He'd made that clear multiple times to the East Europeans, you know, that, you know, the days of Soviet intervention were over, um, to the point where he sometimes didn't even intervene to help the reformers enough, but he certainly wasn't going to intervene against them. Um, so I think those are part of the answer. Yes. The lady there with the gray scarf. Uh, thank you very much for your lovely lecture. Uh, my name is Agnes. I'm from Poland. And I, first of all, want to say thank you. You spotted about the comments about um, fall of the belly roll and celebration of the falling uh, in Poland. But my question is about more Europe, Europe, EU as a whole, because you nicely described the internal problems of the Germans, but I have impression that this, these problems, we can describe what is happening now in European Union. Would you agree with the question that Western Germany did not or couldn't address properly the problems Eastern Germans experienced, this some kind of post-traumatic disorder after fall of the Berlin Wall. And the same we can say now that Western Europe somehow did not properly address the problems of all Central and Eastern European countries. And this is the reason why we have this 
serious issues now, the cracks within EU. Yeah, that, I mean, that may very well be part of it, the rocky transition. Um, again, I mean, many people have gained. I mean, more people have gained than lost, but the ones who've lost have, have become a vocal minority, and in some cases, well, I mean, those kinds of regimes have come to power, not in Germany, but elsewhere they have. Um, yeah, I mean, German leaders have, have talked recently about the need for more empathy, <laughs> you know, for um, the challenges and, you know, even the trauma. I think they've used that word of what some East Germans have gone through. Now, again, I've heard from some of my West German friends who say this is ridiculous and who are outraged. Like, what do you mean trauma? We've put, you know trillions, a trillion euros, I think, into the East. You know, things are so much better. And I mean, some of some people I know from the former East who um, definitely don't want to go back and are not nostalgic, are very upset with some of their fellow former countrymen, such as Tom Sello, who marked, who mounted the exhibit about the peaceful revolution. He said, sometimes I think I need to remind former East Germans what things were actually like in this country in November of 1989. Buildings were falling apart. The, the, the air was so polluted with smog because of all the cold. The rivers were polluted. The forest, there was acid rain. You know, if you were a dissident, you couldn't go to university. You know, he's like, you know, what part of it, how can people not remember this? And so, yes, there is this nostalgia. In, in all of these countries and in, and in, you know, the former Soviet Union as well. You know, you have these hopes and dreams. Um, and, the, you know, with the fall of the wall, you know, many East Germans, they'd been watching West German television. They, they probably assumed, hey, I'll have a Mercedes or a BMW. Everything will be great. You know, not realizing that, you know, that doesn't happen so easily. Um, and so, yeah, there is this nostalgia when, when times are tough, but, you know, both people from the West as well as really more importantly people from the former East, you know, keep reminding people, you know, let's remember what things were actually like back then. Now, that doesn't excuse that maybe things could have been done differently. Um, over the past 30 years, but it's important to remember, you know, what that system and what the results of that system were really like, and, you know, including what I've talked about today, you know, people who were killed trying to get out of that situation. Well, we have exhausted our time, <laughs> but I first, I really, on behalf of all of us, I want to congratulate you on this book. Thank this you. is the product of a lifetime of work, so um, you're, we're, we're very privileged to have you here. Um, uh, Hope will be in the foyer area outside where you can purchase the book. This is the book here, um, and she was, will graciously sign it for you. Um, so all that remains is for me to ask you to please join me in thanking Professor Hope Harrison.